three, two, one, and we are live once again. Codecast Season Three Furious Competitor Series. Someone who have has been on the list to have on the pod for a long time. It's finally happening now. Good friend, Joel Wadzinski. Joel, how are you doing? I am doing well, Cody. I appreciate it. That was a, uh, probably more of an intro than I deserve. I uh, can't imagine it's you know that exciting, but uh, excited to be on nonetheless and really pumped to be here. Uh, as always, I feel every time we have a conversation, it is uh, one worth having. So I've no doubt today will be the same. Fair. And I couldn't agree more. So this is like you guys will see this as a common recurring theme is I think Joel's had such a crazy life and like such a so many cool, different, interesting ways of like what is normal to us, what would be nuts to us to Joel is like an average Tuesday going to the store. So um, I guess to give some context here, like Cody, Joel lives in Florida, you live in Illinois. How in the world did you guys connect? So Joel, I think it would be Tyler Huey that technically would have connected us technically off that. Um, So uh, how I got, I'll never forget this. I called Joel in the summer of probably Joel it would have been two years ago, maybe I think at this point. Yeah, um, uh, right around there, maybe a year and a half, two years, somewhere in that window. I was driving the 290, and I remember talking to Joel, and there was something weird about it. Where after talking to him for ten minutes, I was like, I have somehow known this guy, but yet never known this guy at all because of all the same stuff he was talking about. I was like, wait, that's like I've read that here. I read that here. And it was just over and over and over again. Um, man, it's, and it's just transpired into creating, you know, what it has become now. And it's just getting better and better. Uh, Joel, I guess to kick things off with here, I think you've got a really cool story of like, who is Joel? Because after you hear Joel's story, you'll think Joel is... Live the experience and experiences of a 49-year-old, but as a, tw- like, subtracted by many years elsewhere, which just means the story of Joel is only going to get cooler and cooler because the runway, Lord willing, is, is going to keep going. Um, Joel, can you just give us, like, all right, a quick background, like, growing up as a kid and then going into the professional world, because I feel like that, like, the, the childhood story we could spend an hour on, but, like, let's just go childhood story and then bring us up to, like, walking out of college and going into the professional space really quick. Okay, cool. So uh, I think a lot of the childhood part shape how I operate today because of lessons learned both in and out of the family, through high school, college, etc. So uh, born and raised in Florida to a tremendous family. I mean, showered with love and affection every day of my life growing up. Um, I, I grew up in a very privileged household, right? Whatever that means to any different individual. Small beach town on the east coast of Florida, Melbourne Beach, with Uh, older brother, like no dogs, really no pets. We had a few birds because my dad had like hated animals right at the time, uh, which is hilarious because now I have a dog and two cats and he'll like roll around on the floor with them playing, which is just (laughs) like hell's frozen over as far as I'm concerned (laughs) by watching that. And so I, I grew up in this amazing environment to parents who worked really hard, worked to provide uh, I mean, I remember when my brother came home from school one day and he, he turned to my, my parents and he said, Mom and Dad, you know, not everybody lives on the water. Like we had this quaint single family home, like 1,700 square feet on a canal 
on this barrier island with ocean on one side, uh, Indian River, uh, intercoastal waterway on the other, and we, we, we lived on the water, and it was just this beautiful home, not massive, right? Uh, and I was so naive, I used to ask my parents, like, hey, when are we going to be rich like this other family? They have a two-story home, right? Because kid logic, the more home you have, the more wealth you have. And my parents are like, kid, like our, our house is like two times the value of that because of our location and this stuff. And so uh, you grow up learning the lessons as you do. But my parents did a tremendous job of driving accountability. You know, we were in a household that was a really tight ship uh, before Saturday morning video games or cartoons the cars all had to be washed, but I also was raised by parents who pretty much raised us in an environment as if, like I hear stories of folks who are raised in the 60s, 70s, and those are the same experiences that I had because there weren't like cell phones. It was go out, be a kid, like run to your neighbor's house. When the street lights turn on, you've got 10 minutes to get home type of an environment. So just go out, be a kid and play and you're going to pull your cars in and out of the driveway to wash them before they go like you're going to go clean the boat because my dad worked for a boating company he was actually a part of building uh Sea-Doo as they they stood up and so we always had demo boats around so my brother and i at really young ages would be taking the boats in and out putting them on and off the dock flushing engines caring for everything so we were taught accountability really young and that is where this snapshot like we didn't have the white picket fence, but if you can imagine that that profile, that's what we had. All of the soccer, you know, celebrations from the, the season ending were at the house because we had the pool, we had the water, we had the boating, we had all this amazing stuff. Uh, and we were a competitive family. I always wanted to beat my older brother. And in reality, he actually thought I was trying to beat him. I wanted to be like him because I always looked up to him. But it was just the two of us, three-year difference. And everything we did, we did together. So uh, we did a lot of water skiing from Little On, and I was competing with somebody three years ahead of my growth curve. So I've always competed with people ahead of me because it was just built in from a young age. I wanted, I couldn't care less about beating kids in my class. I wanted to beat him. And so mm-hmm. whether it was track and field, we ended up getting into cheerleading, basketball, gymnastics, uh, tumbling, stunting, theater, you name it. Everything I did, I was competing with somebody three years ahead of the curve, and he was pretty dang good at just about everything we did, so it gave me this incredible advantage. And uh, in the later years of high school, my brother had gone off to college, and this was something that shaped who I became because my parents, who worked incredibly hard, I mean, uh, my dad worked for Sea-Doo, he worked for Skidoo Snowmobiles up in Wisconsin. Our family got down to Florida by him raising his hand after being asked to, didn't have much of an option, uh, to start on what was called the Sea-Doo Project. So he and four other individuals moved down and they had this goal of how do we turn a snowmobile into this watercraft type thing, take off the skis. At the time they had stand-up jet skis. Uh, Yamaha had them, Kawasaki had them. And all these guys are out flipping around on these skis and tooling around and all their girlfriends and wives and families were on the beaches and they could actually could not enjoy it with them. So they had this idea of what if we, and, and the owner of the company, our president of the company at the time had it, what if we created the same thing, but it was like a snowmobile on the water. You could take your family with you, still be fun, fast, enjoyable. And we're going to go invent this thing. And so he was a part of that founding team of five who did it. And they, through the years, that's why we had such a great childhood. They, they, Everybody knows Sea-Doo. You've heard of the watercraft. Yeah. You've heard of the Sea-Doo jet boats, sport, uh, you know, the, uh, the water, personal watercrafts themselves. 
So across the board, we always had boats around, and it was really, really cool. Well, after 22 years with the company, the economy had turned. And as my brother went off to college, the last three years became a very different environment in our household, where my mom was working five, six, seven part-time jobs, depending on the season. Um, my dad had been let go from Sea-Doo because of having been there so long. He was making so much money. They could get somebody much younger yep. to do it much cheaper. And, uh, you know, it's hard because you start looking at what kind of loyalty is there. It's not like he owned Sea-Doo, right? So I tell the story, and I think people think he, like, owned the company that became a $900 million company. He was integral, and he made really good money, but he was pretty much left with nothing, right, like when, when that time came. So I watched him do jobs that were so below his capability level just to do whatever he had to do to get by. I watched my mom do it, and I was also at an age where I could have contributed, but they wouldn't let me because they said my job was to be a kid. They wouldn't let me get a job in high school because I was involved in sports, all these after-school activities, getting pretty good grades. My school was very intense. We were ranked like 45th in the nation academically out of like 22,000 public schools. So we had no football team. We had no uh, baseball team. All that money went into academics. And so going on a bit of a run here, but that's really my childhood that shaped me. So I saw the sacrifice that my parents made to provide a life for us. And I realized that like to give, this is a Steve Prefontaine quote, right? To give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. That was a saying that got ingrained in my heart that my parents were giving everything they had, so I could not sacrifice my gift, so I had to give everything I could to honor that sacrifice that they made. And so that shaped my work ethic from there on out. So Joel, you got a pretty cool cheerleading career uh, that stems into college. You wanna to touch on that one really quick, because I think that kind of, like competing at a level like that, I think it's just like, the theme will get consistent here, but just going forward, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, absolutely, man. So where, where cheerleading started was um, unintentional. It's not like uh, my brother and I never like looked at each other and said, let's be cheerleaders, right? And let's do this really perceptively girly thing. And ultimately, we both played basketball, and we did not make the school team my seventh and his would have been his 10th grade year in, in high school. And it was a seventh through 12th grade, so we both went to the same school. Now, my mom had run an after-school cheerleading program at her elementary school. She was a bit entrepreneurial as well. And a bunch of her cheerleaders asked her, hey, Coach Carey, can you come coach the high school because their coach is retiring? My mom said, my kids play basketball. They're going to be at the games anyways. This was not an athletic school, and we were pretty athletic, so she was not worried about us making the team. Big mistake because neither one of us made the team that year. And I don't know if my brother did something to upset the coach. I don't think he did. Like, I just think there was other more talented people, right? Because there, there's not always a reason that someone else's fault. Like, we just weren't good enough. And so we had two options, Cody. We could either go home, do homework after school, and chores that dad would assign us around the house because, again, we're very, like, accountable household. Or, and mind you, this is still the time where we, like, good financially as a family. So... Uh, or we could hang out with the cheerleaders after school where mom was going to be. And so we chose that one. That seemed like a better option. So we just sit around cheer practice and uh, eventually she had been tasked with their mascot program. So we ended up becoming mascots for some window of time. Cause she said, I'm not having other kids do this. If you yahoos are going to be here anyways, you're going to do this and it's going to be fine. And uh, from there, every now and again, somebody gets sick, they're hurt, whatever. My brother was built like a brick house in high school. 
and in seventh grade I was like four foot eleven, and so everyone kind of looked at me and thought, oh, like you're small, you can replace the people who like go up in the air or whatever, because I was kind of their same size. So if people were missing, my mom would just tap us in, and we'd go, oh, mom, truly, that was pretty pretty girly, and she'd go, I don't care, like you're going, and we go, you're right, 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 <laughs> I'll mom no twice, and so from there uh, we actually pretty much fell in love with the sport of cheerleading because we realized we were pretty capable around it. Uh, my brother was, again, just throwing people up in the air like crazy. They all looked at me and thought, maybe he'll grow one day. And I eventually did. And so we do anything, we go all in. We got involved into tumbling, gymnastics, learning how to do roundoffs by handsprings, tucks, fulls, doubles, you name it. And we had a lot of fun doing it. And that parlayed into both he and I went off uh, into college and cheered for the University of Central Florida, UCF, go Knights. And uh, we had a couple of world university championships that were won, uh, <laughs> top ranking teams in the nation that we got over some time, uh, uh, three times in the top three, top two. Uh, it was one of those weird instant instances where like we would win the world university championship, but it's all the same teams that go compete it and in nationals. And like, one of those other very competitive teams would beat us in the nationals, but we'd beat them in the world university. So uh, regardless of how you look at it, we were competing at a tremendously high level, have a whole bunch of accolades to go look back on. We're, I got flown out to France at one point in time to spend a week out there, uh, just showing other countries what competitive cheerleading can look like in the States, which is far superior than pretty much anywhere else. And got to go experience the world as a result of this passion that all resulted from just being around, right? And we kind of fell into it and, and I, I wouldn't change it for the world. So we go there. Then from UCF, we go out into the working world. And is your first job outside of UCF is Gartner? First, yeah. First, right. like I called it my first big boy job because I was uh, I was painting houses to pay through college. Again, I did anything to pay my way through school. Uh, didn't necessarily have like we weren't like a football program, right? That brings in all this revenue, so you get all these incredible scholarships. We were, we were a group of passionate people just competing out to put put things out on the mat. And uh, my parents were not in the position to go put us through, and it was actually the best thing they ever did because I would. I was pressure washing pavers and like borrowing people's pressure washer who were neighbors and going in and uh, I was painting houses just on referrals. I was working at Universal as a stunt performer doing backflips in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and like twirling sticks around to fight people or whatever. And you, you name the job, we were doing it in college. I mean, for three years straight, I was selling my plasma for $200, like $250 a month, twice a week sneaking in and like lying on the prescription saying like have you been physically active today i'm drenched in sweats coming from workouts to cheer practice but i gotta squeeze it in between class and then going off to paint houses this night to meet a deadline like you name it the hustle was there and it was just out of necessity and you do what you got to do even when you don't know where your next meal is going to come from it's great to genesis man like we always figure it out in life right you ever find how that weird it is no matter what it is we always figure it out at the end of the day load up the pressure and you'll find a way to get the bar up uh, yep. it, it's actually a shame that more people don't know what it's like to have their backs in a corner and i'll never like there's so many people who've had it so much worse than i am not sitting here like i was ragged hiding it's not like an eric spofford story right it's just you look at that and you go holy cow that guy can do it anybody can right 
But uh, at the time, it was terrifying when you look at your account and you're like, I've got 13 cents and I have rent due in two weeks and I probably need to eat between now and then and I have zero idea how I'm going to go get this money. Uh, you know, amateur nights start looking pretty appealing <laughs> when your brother and you are like in good shape. And yeah. you're all like, we do clips, like, we can go get a crowd going crazy. And we came dang close a few times to feeling like we needed to pull that card. Uh, we never did, but hey, no shame in that game. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, man, it's... It's one of those things where you, you scrap it out and fight it out. And I, I, and Joe, I guess you're right, man. Like if you never had your back against the wall, it the pressure. I think sometimes is a privilege, especially when you use it in the right way. But you can overpressure yourself and you can break. And I think it's really hard. Like I usually let I'm thinking like God kind of put me in a certain enough pressure of how much I could handle because it's more than I ever thought I personally could handle. I figured my way out of it. But like if I would have put myself into it too hard and leveraged over, I can see how people crack. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, funny how we, this always works like this. Yeah. Um, let's figure there. And then we then it, then it is Gartner afterwards? Yep. So I, I got to a point in my final semester at UCF, and my, my like life plan had been blown to smithereens, right? Realistically, I was going to school for, for athletics. I've got tremendous grades in high school. I had like a 4.7 GPA coming out of it, uh, weighted, obviously. And then going to college, and I was like, I just got to stay eligible because I got to pay my way through school. And... Like, I really care to learn, but at the same time, I'm going to get kicked out of our place if we don't make money. So, like, sorry, Mom and Dad, if you're listening to this, I was skipping classes to go to work, always saying, like, oh, it's recorded, I'll catch it live. <laughs> Sometimes you put it on, like, 3x speed yep. and you really catch a thing just so you kind of say you did, you're crash studying for exams. And I go and I sit down with my coach, and I have one semester left. I'm going to compete for one more national championship. And I look at her and I go, Coach Linda, I have no idea what I want to do with my life, where to go. I have no clue. And she says, well, most people don't. Most people happen, like, unless you're born, like, you've always wanted to be a doctor, go be a doctor. She goes, that's not you. If you've always wanted to be a lawyer, go be a lawyer. That's not you. She goes, you're made for big things. But in the process of figuring out, you need to go make some money. Like, you might as well. And your buddy Trent, who, you know, we cheered together, is at this company called Gartner. He seems to be making a lot of money first year out of college. Why don't you go talk to him? And I couldn't tell you what he does. And I go, I don't know if I – I'm selling blood for, like, more plasma. Like, I'm selling basically blood for money. <laughs> I am pressure washing driveways. I am cleaning people's houses. I am – you name it. Like, there's some nasty things, too, that I won't go into depth here. People might be eating. But I was doing it, and so I go, I don't care. If there's air conditioning, like, I'm in. That sounds great. Yeah. So I call up my buddy Trent. Call Trent. He goes, oh, this is great. You would kill it here. This would be amazing. And I'll put you in the referral program. You're guaranteed an interview. Well, it's a pre-interview, but they prep you for the actual interview. And, Cody, in at the end of the pre-interview, the recruiter says to me, Joel, um, we're not going to put you through to the next round because the only thing it seems that you're qualified for is to be a professional cheerleader. You are not fit for Gartner. You are not fit for corporate culture. And you are not fit for sales. I wish you the best of luck, though. Thank you for the time today. And he hangs up the phone. And I'm not the kind of person who's really been told no uh, many times. And, I, and I, 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 I might not have sounded humble, but I really do say that humbly, right? I look back and I, 
if I had been given a no, I had always worked past it. Yeah. This didn't necessarily come easy for me. School didn't come easy for me. Did my older brother, he's like a photographic memory. If you called him right now and asked him what's on page 278 of like the third book in the Harry Potter series, he'd be able to recite it to you probably. I never had that. So I had to study hard, late nights. Things came hard to me athletically because, again, I'm competing with this guy much older. Even though I, was a, I became a great athlete, like I worked very, very hard to get there. My mom worked in a health club as I was growing up as, as well. So like I was always in the health club working out while she was working to try to go beat my brother. And I took that so hard. And as I get told no, I call my mom, right? Because what do you do when you're heartbroken? Right. You call your mom. And I, I'm emotional. I've got tears coming down the face. And if I if I say I was crying, it wasn't like a somber. Like I was probably broken down, like blubbery crying. And I go, Mom, I have no idea. Mind you, I'm like almost 220 pounds, like 6% body fat, 6 feet tall. I'm just like incredible shape at the time. I probably looked hysterical. If there were memes raging and cameras recording, it would have been hilarious. I call her and she goes, all right, uh, where are you? And I said, I'm at the student union. I kind of got into this corner of a room so I could take this call. She goes, walk to your car, go home, and feel bad for yourself the entire way. But the second you get home, call me back and give me a plan of what you're going to do. Hmm. I said, hmm. I don't know. Mind you, I'm painting houses. I'm paying all sorts of buddies to like go paint houses while I can't make certain deadlines and stuff. So I'm thinking to myself on the way home, I'm like, build my paint company because I had an LLC that I put together. And then uh, I'm like, well, shit, do I continue coaching cheerleading? I, I could make really good money doing my stunt privates and gymnastics lessons with the pedigree that we had. And I didn't want to get stuck there, right? And so uh, ultimately, I, I realized that I didn't have to take no for an answer. I watched my dad build a sales organization like in Dealer Network, and I was like, oh, they don't. They don't take no for an answer. So I went home and I called my mom and I said, I'm going to get this job at Gartner. And she goes, they just told you no. I go, they only give me one no. They're going to have to give me a lot more. So I make a LinkedIn profile. I'm searching for the company online. I'm getting the contacts who work in recruiting at Gartner. And I'm just mass sending requests. Hey, I was working through the process. My buddy seems to think I have an incredible ability to succeed here. He is a top performer. We fit the same profile. I'd love an opportunity to get a second chance with you. And I finally get one individual after a couple weeks of, of trying uh, to say yes. His name is Jared Hoffman, and I owe Jared so much, and I so appreciate him giving me a chance. He said, I'll take a call, but it's not formal. So he takes his call in the off hours, gives me a second chance, coaches me through the process, and ultimately worked my way into getting an offer. And I had this huge chip on my shoulder that I had to go prove something. I didn't study business. I didn't study sales, as behavioral sciences, right? So like, I had no aptitude to go win here but i had a sheer drive to go break some records and, and and try to go prove that i could go actually do what this individual said i couldn't when i got to gartner um i had the fortune of breaking a couple of records in that process so i was the first i uh, broke i actually sold a new client i brought on a new client while i was still in a training environment and this isn't a like these are not small ticket yeah. items either so that was a pretty cool accomplishment uh Broke, hit winter circle within four months of going live with six months left to go on the year on that full term quota. Uh, and success is the combination of opportunity meeting preparation. I couldn't control the opportunity part, but I was damned to be prepared for every moment. 
And I always felt like I had a disadvantage because all these people around me were so smart. They all had sales degrees or business degrees with sales certificates. And I'm Googling things like SWOT analysis, thinking it's a Gartner deliverable. Turns out that's just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, but I, I understood that I needed to go learn from people who were really good. And uh, on the first day of training at Gartner, they said, you actually don't have to know anything because we have global best practices and we're going to teach you everything. If you just adopt it, mind you, I'm sitting there six hours into going like, I have no idea what's happening around me. Like none of yeah. this makes sense. Barely could even take notes because I couldn't understand what was being said. I felt like I was in a Russian class and I hear this and I go, I can do that. I don't know anything. They're going to teach me it all. I can work really hard and I know I'm coachable. Right. Because what that first recruiter didn't know when she told me no was I was telling her about how great of an athlete I was thinking she was going to pull through. He's hardworking, determined, embraces feedback, listens to his coaches. All she heard was somebody bragging about how much weight they could lift, how many titles they had won, all of these accolades that I thought would prevail. And I realized I needed to be a better storyteller. So I started looking up who was the best at all the different core functions of the job on the stack rankings and realized I was just going to go shadow those people learn what they were doing, compile their best practices and become this like uh, mega transformer around all the different people and pieces who did these different parts of the job really well. So Gardner started asking me, well, how are you, how are you doing so well? And I'm literally just doing what that guy did for bringing on <laughs> new clients. How do you, how's your retention rate so high? That girl has the best retention rates in the entire company. I'm just doing what she does. I'm doing your global best practices with a mix of these best top performers, done. And so I started getting all these accolades for just mirroring and parroting what all these other people were doing. And at that time, I'm like, man, Tony Robbins says success leaves clues. It's so true. Like somebody else has done the thing, just go do what they do and figure it out that way. So uh, I had a really good time at Gartner, ended up going into sales learning and development and helped to overhaul their uh, global training best practices and how we were onboarding new new sales professionals, brought on, uh, shoot, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000. Uh, new sales hires and was a part of leading all of them to getting into the footsteps of their first career, first job out of college. So a uh, really rewarding part of the career path. It's interesting. So this is kind of cool, like how it all takes a turn. Also, side note too, what the hell is with Gardner turning people down the first time? Because you and I also have a mutually good friend who's pretty talented over there as well. Had the same thing, like, nah, the first time, like, I, whoever is in charge of the recruiting practice, I'm not sure if it's a game they play of like, how bad are you willing to press us to get into here? But there might be some talent that has walked past that place that is like, you know what? I'm going to try this elsewhere. Uh, oh. It's just my, yeah, success leaves clues and also bad practices leave clues essentially as well. Joel, have you ever, it's, it's funny how you're talking about this. Uh, have you ever read the book? Um, my goodness. It is, I believe, uh, Liars. It's not long-term, uh, Liars Poker, the story of Solomon Brothers. So it's an investment, like recruiting practices are goofy. Uh, Liar's Poker is probably one of my favorite books I've ever read in my entire life. Um, it is the story of Michael Lewis, who wrote the big short, uh, the movie we've all seen. The book he wrote of Liar's Poker is better. I will die on a hill saying this. Uh, that Solomon Brothers was this monster investment bank that was the bank. Like we think Goldman was is a big name. Solomon was the name to be in okay. the 60s, 70s. Uh, it was like Solomon Holzer & Co. got merged to Solomon Brothers. 
Uh, and what they used to do is they used to F with people with the recruiting. And so what they do, they go to prestigious universities. And I remember reading this in the book many years ago. And they do like some weird stuff. So at, in the middle of the night, like the winter, they would do paper sign up. And what they do is they'd go in front of an old building. They'd hammer the sheet out there. And then you'd have to like race and claw and fight people to sign your name up for like an interview. How it would work, they would go to like these old school Massachusetts schools. There's a lot of wood windows and stuff like that. And the day before, they would go up there. So you'd walk in the bottom door, walk up the stairs, sit down, they'll interview you. Easy enough. Simultaneously, what they would do uh, the day before they got there is they would, in the wo- in the window, they'd pop two nails into the corner of it and the hidden seams. So, Joel, you and I know you'd be the strongest guy in the world. That window ain't opening it, period. And Michael uh-huh. Lewis tells the story of what they would do is they would uh, they'd be like, all right, hey, we're excited. Joel, what's your name? All right, great. We're excited to uh, talk to you today. You know, it's a little bit hot in here. Can you, um, can you just go up and crack open that window behind you? And just to watch what you do. And uh, the guy, I guess, I believe it's before or after Michael Lewis interviewed, they heard this loud shattering. The guy took the chair and threw it through the window, and he got hired. So it's just like the, some of the biggest places have the weirdest like recruiting practices. Um, Our country had that with Ellis Island, right? Like they would send people up a flight of stairs to go take a test. And the actual test was folks watching them if they actually knew how to walk upstairs because everything in New York City at the time was these skyscrapers that you had to go up all these flights of stairs just to live there. And you'd be a nuisance if you physically could not do it or knew how to. And it would demand, uh, body mechanics were not there. So huh. like, our country is founded on tricks of who we actually want to let in, et cetera. Well, not seems- to mention that blemishes on our history, but <laughs> I won't go into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. One of my buddies works at a trading firm. It's like a prop trading firm downtown. And like he sat down and this, like I got... Like, they'll ask a bunch of random out. He's like, I got three dice in my hand. One's a two, one's a six. What's the probability of the fourth one's a four? Now, what's the probability those three numbers multiply out to be? Like, guys are just way too smart. And like, guy, that's way past my pay grade. Um, yeah. So, we go Gartner. And then this is where I think it kind of gets somewhat, like, this is where, like, the tale of it gets really interesting. So, there is a guy that you go and work for who runs a podcast that is way bigger than mine right now, and also because he's got big names on it, like maybe one day Codecast will get to a sphere of that level, but like it's just going to take many, 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 many years, some big stuff, and like I got to do some other stuff on the side before I get to that point. Um, uh-huh. Walk me, So Joel works – every time I – so how I work with Joel is I would – I would talk to Joel like every six months just following up with him, like new stuff he did, new stuff he did. And it was always something cool and exciting. And eventually the one time you're like, hey, I work for Patrick Bet David. And at first, like I didn't register because like I was like, maybe he's at a law firm or something like that. And then like the silence hit me like, wait, Pat? And so how did that, walk us through how that worked. Yeah, absolutely. So at, at one moment in time in my journey, I was under contract to purchase a, a decently sized residential and commercial painting firm to add in. I, I had kept a lot of my work going. I was pretty proud of that. But I was going to uh, – I realized that I needed to go create – at least I thought I did right at the time. I thought I needed to create the environment that I wanted to work in because I kept running into these glass ceilings or different moments in, in my journey. And in this pursuit of more, right, I, I look up to folks like Andy Frisella, Patrick Ben David, and, and all of these different – you know, there's Harmozies up there. There's there's all of these individuals who you look at online, especially as you're a young, ambitious guy, and you go, damn, 
I feel like I can be just like that. I feel like I feel inside I have it in me. And I've had a few entrepreneurial efforts to start from scratch, uh, you know, that were more passion jobs. And all of a sudden I have a relationship with a charitable organization and I'm selling bracelets and every bracelet sold gives a year of water to somebody the way the profits feed through and based on their structure and it starts well and then it kind of fades and I, I saw all of these people who I perceived as overnight successes and I realized because I hit a hard moment, got to move on to the next idea, right? It's like the Shark Tank mentality where you hear the ones that are like, you did that in your first year, you're something, you're going to go. I was waiting for the right idea, not realizing I wasn't being an entrepreneur like I needed to be to go make these things happen. Mm. And so in that moment, I realized I have a steady relationship. I have a lot of things going for me in life. I have a lot of experience. I have my paint company that's rolling. Why don't I just start rolling up paint companies, right? And I can I can go all in on doing this. And so I sell the sports car. I, I get a, a light-duty truck so I can throw generators in the back. And uh, doing what I need to do to go really invest in myself. And I get under contract to buy this painting company. And long story short, the deal goes sideways. Uh, and ultimately, the owner... He was going to finance the deal because my financing fell through because the economy started turning. And in order to finance the deal, he continued wanted to, to wanting to dry, draw a salary. And I said, you don't get to be the bank and the boss at the same time. Like, if you're going to bank it and I don't meet payments, you can take the company back. But I'm not going to pay your full salary without it going towards the debt that I'm going to owe you because he just wanted to continue drawing it as an inactive employee except he wanted 100% decision-making control over the direction of the company. That's great, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, I knew I could go blow this thing up, and he also wanted double the cost of the business. I said, I'm willing to overpay if you're banking it, but I'm not willing to overpay by double, plus your salary over a 10-year payoff period, which basically, like, quintuples the cost of acquisition. This just no longer makes sense for me. He said, well, you don't have the money, and I said, not. Quite frankly, you don't have a buyer, right, if if that's the case. So, you know, fine, sold the company, it was fine. Uh, let's just say that when that fell through, I was in a moment of transition. Again, I wasn't worried about it because I've been backed into a corner before. And so I go, ah, I'm going to start doing my own paint jobs. And I start booking a few cabinet paint jobs. And those are great because really high profit margin. And uh, I start just going back into the working world. And a guy who I trained at Gartner calls me up and he goes, hey, I'm meeting Patrick Bet David. I feel he has a consulting firm, but I think it can really blow up in a big and different way. As a part of Valuetainment, it's this consulting group. I think you can go be pivotal in helping me get it there. And I have a meeting set up in a couple of weeks. Do you want to join me? I go, I got nothing to lose. All right. I love Pat. I've been listening to him for a long time. So once I vetted out and I made sure that it was legitimate and actually happening, I said, sure. Uh, and he goes, awesome. Like, I want to be in more of the product development side of expanding. Uh, at the time, it was Valuetainment Consulting. It's now Bit David Consulting. And uh, he goes, I'm going to need somebody to help to build what are the sales best practices, train new hires in the process and and go. And so I ended up going and working for Pat. And the original structure and the way that we designed it didn't exactly shake out. That individual moved on to uh, other ventures. It it did not seem to be the right environment for him. But I built a really good relationship with Pat, with Tom, with the the whole value team and home team. I mean, it's an intimate, like, family-style setting tremendously competitive a very intense environment but pat is behind closed doors who he is on camera and i have a lot of respect for that in a big way so i worked for pat for quite a while 
and I had a great time being a part of his, uh, you know, ended up leading a sales team underneath his, his leadership, helping sell people going into the vault, his mastermind programs, different online courses he had. We had a whole lot of fun and got to go on a few trips with Pat, spend a lot of one-on-one time with him, and, and, and I learned a whole lot in the process. We worked with clients like Hormozy, uh, Cole Gordon, built a great relationship with him, and you name it in the industry, we were pretty much making connections with and building relationships too. And, and I got to see a totally different side of the world, one of which the likes I had never seen, right? Even as privileged as I was, that was a different level of game that I had observed for the first time. And I guess, Joel, you know, life happens perfectly on time and it leads us mm-hmm. to where we are now. Totally, man. And obviously we're, we're spinning this out because I think it creates a big part of like, the story of this to get where you are now. Uh-huh. Joe, in a quick glimpse, can you give us the position that you have now at Insight? Yeah, so uh, Insight is a firm that for, for a, a stint, about a year and a half, I worked in driving the, I'd left Gartner to join Insight, and I was leading new business sales for the organization. So uh, when I say leading, I mean like, I stepped in and it was like, we want to grow this thing, but you're like sales organization party of one. Like I was hitting the phones and grinding it out to bring on clients. And we started pacing like the organization that never seen growth was awesome. Uh, but unfortunately it wasn't at the, uh, the rate that I, again, really wanted to be at the organization was doing great. I, I wanted to step into a more leadership role where I was creating comp structures, driving sales teams, obviously involving because I don't think you can totally remove yourself in sales and continue to thrive in what works today. But I wanted to be coaching, mentoring, driving, leading, being there for critical moments and helping others get to their level as opposed to just making killer money myself. And in caring for them, I knew I would go make a bunch. The position wasn't quite ready at the time when an opportunity came my way to leave. So I ended up leaving Insight. Huge respect for the CEO and founder of our firm. And he said to me, I'm going to call you one day. And when I do, can you at least commit to taking the call? And I said, Chris, I think the world of you, I will always take your call. I, I expect that we're going to continue a relationship, whether you want to or not, like <laughs> I'm going to be around. And so uh, he, while I was working with Pat, he gave me a call and he said, hey, partner at the firm has left, who is leading our client success organization, the active client side, which was rather large. And he, he said, We've stayed in touch. You've continued to impress me. I'd like you to bring back what you've learned in the marketplace into our firm. So I have the fortune of leading an incredible group of client success leads in Insights uh, Contact Center Consulting Firm. And Joel, I guess life happens perfectly on time every single time. Uh-huh. So you've become effectively a master entrepreneur inside of a large org. And so... This is where I think it gets us to a really interesting topic here of there is this long story of Joel getting to this point of where he is now. But Joel, all those things that happened, how much do you attribute to those to the success you're able to have here so far as an entrepreneur in Insight? Everything. Um, every, Every win that our team is having right now was shaped by something I learned in one of my previous environments, moments, pieces. And it's so hard when you're 21 years old, skipping meals, going to practices, not able to go have a 
post-workout protein shake with all the other folks on your team, and they're like, nah, man, I'm trying to be lean. In reality, you can't afford the protein powder, right? You can't even afford lunch, and you're going, I'm, I know for a fact I'm going to get paid in two days, but that's got to go to rent and this. Like, when you're being told then, like, hey, this is a trial that will be your triumph, right? I think in my let sold said, said your trials will be your triumphs. At the time, you're like, malarkey, right? This sucks, yeah. man. I, like, tell that to my stomach. It's groaning, and I still have to go work eight hours tonight, and it's 9 p.m. already because I have a deadline to go have a paint job done by tomorrow morning. 7 a.m., I have people walking into a house they expect to be fully completed, and then I'm going to have to chase them down to get the cash they owe me. Tell me how this is going to be a part of my triumph. But every single piece whether it was the uh, the jet flights with Pat where we're flying out to California or to Arizona or going out to Texas and back and you are having the opportunity to sit down for five like uninterrupted hours because the jet's Wi-Fi goes down. Uh, charter, right? Not, not his. When his own the Wi-Fi will work perfectly. I have no <laughs> doubt for the internet warriors here, right? Uh, but you get to sit across from this titan of industry who is who he says he is and ask questions about lessons he has learned. And those are lessons that I'm using every single day with my team and learning how to drive them, how how I get them from being an absolute amateur to a good citizen, to a professional and operating at that level. And what drives those individuals to go compete and, and finding out what works with each individual and how they're motivated differently at different stages and the, the growth path, all of it, man, at 100% of every trial that I have faced, every stage that I've been in has shaped where I am today. Uh, even so that we something we talked about not long ago was when I was running my own company, I was working just as many hours as I work now, but I was focused on sales, service, product, marketing, finance, inventory, scheduling, like you're kind of horizontally focused because you got to do everything. And now as an entrepreneur doing not bad, uh, I'm able to focus on one thing. Our focus is client satisfaction and driving our next deal within our client base and making sure that it's truly impactful for the clients and having an amazing experience and benefit from working with us. So now I get to go all in on mastering this one skill and getting others to master it too. And it's funny, Joel, I'm happy you pointed out as well as like, Joel is an entrepreneur, I am an entrepreneur. We both work the same amount of hours. I think there is people assume the entrepreneur is entrepreneur light, and that is not that is subjectively false. And I like how you put it. I was actually thinking about this. It's funny how you wrote that. I focus on a widespread that I have to juggle and different pieces. Joel focuses on a narrow spread and just goes very deep with it. We both work the same amount of hours. It's just meant in different areas. There is no like when you want to compete at a pinnacle level. That is what it is. Like it just is what it is, and that's like what it's going to require. And most people like think that there is this glorification of being an entrepreneur. It's like you do whatever the hell you want today because you think it works. You can, sure you can, but the thing is, life doesn't stop around you. So all the fixed expenses are the same. Everything else is still the same. And the same thing with an entrepreneur. Like, well, if you don't like that, you can just go be an entrepreneur. You can be. Your first job, yeah, you deserve to go be an entrepreneur. It's like, you haven't done anything to then therefore prove that. Like, I don't yeah. understand where the internet's getting it so wrong. Like, they glorify, it's weird, Joel, because most of the guys you and I listen to, a lot of guys you've got to met, none of them glorify it like that. Like, none of them glorify it of like, oh, look at me because I started my own business, so I get to do whatever I want. Or it's, they always talk about 
hey, you're out there right now. I know what that's like. I get it. So it, it's it's never the same, man. I just feel like the internet has got it so wrong of what an entrepreneur is, or it's like fast money, right? Like, what was it? Drop shipping was the big thing for years. Like, you're gonna go buy from Alibaba and then go put it on Amazon. Well, then Amazon started cracking down on that. Anything fast money, like you're not an entrepreneur, you're just a brokering a middleman, realistically. Yep. It's a big and difference. And you have like little to no impact. Right? Zero. Like, <laughs> almost zero. You look at what Pat has built, the number of people whose lives he's changed, insane. You look at the firm that we operate, we're a very boutique consulting firm. So we, we work with folks who are starting up, uh, building their customer service organization and we work with contact center consulting so we work all across every part people process technology within all the way up to behemoths right like mercedes-benz or delta faucet these massive multi 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 billion dollars many of them deca multi multi deca billion dollar companies like they're creating jobs lives they're creating an ability for somebody to clock out of five and that's totally okay if that's the life that they want to live no shame in that zero percent an issue if that's how you want to live your life and you love the company and you contribute and you're a good citizen and you know you rise to the occasion when asked upon it you look at the number of lives those organizations impact it's huge some people are so rich or excuse me some people are so poor all they have is money. We've talked about that too. And those are the people who figure out this cash flow game, right? And I don't mean that all cash flow games are bad. Like if you're a real estate investor, awesome, sick, it's huge. Build a team and help people live lives, right? But like if all you care about is creating cash for yourself to go have the Lambo, to go have the jet, I promise you, anybody who's listening to this who wants that, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. It's pretty cool when you start getting things in your life that you never thought that you could have. But at the same time, you go look at those individuals who are doing it and they hate being alone. They can't stand it because they have to face the truth of who they are when they look at themselves in the mirror. That's why they're always doing flash, they're always at the parties, they're always clubbing, they're always doing this stuff. They don't actually trust their own thoughts of who they are when everybody else is not with them. It's the biggest imposter. They know that they're not doing anything to better society. The biggest imposter game, the one that lives, and the silence is the truth teller. That's it, man. That's it. It's the, yeah, man. I always, I often think about this over and over and over again. Like, we talk about it all the time. It's never been about us. It's about who else we can help and then change their lives. Like, when you hear people, like, I hope one day that I impact people to a level so much that when they talk about me, they bring tears to their eyes. Yeah. Pause break where it's like, that guy was the one that changed it for me. Like, I can look back Uh and definitively say, my life is infinitely better by knowing him than if I did not. And that that's like the game of entrepreneurship. And every one of those guys will tell you, like, any one of those guys, and I, I've only got a chance to meet a couple of guys that have run big-scale companies like that, but everyone will share the same thing, too, of, like, what's, the most, what's their favorite thing that you've done? And they'll always tell you a story of someone's life that's got changed. It's never been the golf course they've golfed, the private. It's never been that ever, period. And so it's if you can realize that now and realize like, hey, I'm just doing this to help people, the money's always there. Like the less you make it about you, that somehow the more money just keeps showing up. I don't know why it is, but it just is what it is. Um, The hard facts of life. And it's like breaking that cycle and getting that point is such a different space, man. I don't know. When you learn how to help people, it, it goes on forever. That's why I always like, I like the term, I like active income, where it's like I have to put something in it and make something better to make a dollar off of it 
than passive income, right? So like, there's nothing wrong with either model. I just like active because name one passive investor that people hail did great things for society. I'm waiting. Still haven't heard about it. You name an active income guy that's changed lives, we can create a whole podcast talking about him. Um, yeah. Now, and not to mention, there's no such thing as passive. Yes. Like, biggest fallacy on the internet that there is. Like, oh, yeah, you're just going to buy all these props. So, like, I, there's this one guy, Joel. I got to send you the clip if I can find it. He's like, you just got $400. You're going to use that or you're going to go use that to invest. No, you're not. You're going to go open up an LLC and then use that LLC to get leverage and then buy a G-Wagon and then leverage the G-Wagon to do rent flipping. And then what you're going to do there. And it's like this big, like all these internet buzzwords that actually mean nothing. Yes. So it's such a fallacy, man. Yes. I'm going to buy a bunch of properties and nothing. And like somehow I think people have this exorbitant uh, expectation like Spofford talks about this like he cash flows a couple hundred dollars from a property I think people think yep. like I'm going to buy this investment property and all of a sudden I'm going to be making like 27% return month over month so basically yep. I'm rich it's like, that's not how that works and if that was the case why is everyone not doing it so yeah a, a thousand percent right and then you go look at the statistics I, and I'm probably going to mess this up right but uh, you look at the average homeowner who has more than one home has like 1.6 homes in america so you start realizing that like again business 96 percent of businesses 92 percent it kind of fluctuates into the 90s never break a million dollars in revenue in america most real estate investors if you have two doors you're like you're murdering the average by 0.4 which is a 20 percent improvement right uh, 0.4 on a one point so whatever i've yeah. just done the math wrong maybe it's 25 percent who cares? You're crushing the game by comparison, but also if you're cash flowing like three, <laughs> the amount of effort it's going to take, like you don't need two doors. 20 doors might start having an impact, right? If you're looking at like $300 per door, that's six grand a month. Okay, cool. Assuming life, that's assuming they're rent. all rented and nothing goes wrong that month. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not not to mention the shelf life that all things have. Trust me, I live in Southwest Florida. 30% of the world around here still has blue tarps, right? My wife and I are blessed to have this beautiful home on the water so we get to watch this awesome sunset every night. But driving to and from work every single day, everything's still blue tarps from Hurricane Ian around us, right? Like, there are disasters that are going to happen. It is, there for every article that some idiot who probably has never invested in real estate or typed it into chat GPT and put it behind a paywall who said, Hey, top best places to invest in real estate and a guide and a calculator and all these things that you're going to go do, go invest in Southwest Florida. Tell that to Fort Myers beach where it was completely decimated last year and insurance claims are cashing out $40,000 checks per household saying it's literally the best that we can do. Sorry about it. Totally. Or just buy a bunch of like laundry mats and like it just automatically prints a bunch of money. So yeah. I think, so Joel, it's actually, I was talking about Instagram today. I'll probably start another business in the next couple of years, but it's something that I haven't told anybody really about until today that I've been planning silently for years, awesome. years. And it's mainly going to be, it's going to have a passive-ish flavor to it, flavor, uh -huh. But it's from all the work that I've done over the past 10 years to get it to that point to doing that. So you can be like, well, Code just built this thing. And it's kind of like, listen, a-hole, 
it, you guys didn't see all the back work I did to have the relationships and connections, therefore build this and then create that. It's like, and it's still not like hands off, man. So it's a, it's a small passion project. Like for anyone listening, because I have a bunch of clients, it's just like, I'm not selling a practice, I'm not leaving the practice. It's like a small little side thing I'm doing. Calm yeah. down. But it, it, like, once again, there's this fallacy that people think that you just show up, you work hard, which I don't know what the hell that means. Working hard. Can someone define for me, what is, what is working hard mean? Like when you realize that everyone is working like, I don't know, Joe, I'm sure you probably, like during the week, I know you're probably working like 12 to 14 hours. That's what I do too. Like that's not working hard. That's just the work that it is. Like that is the standard requirement of being a pinnacle player. Point blank. You want to know hard work? Hard work is like you're in a field. Yes. And you're doing hard work in the heat and you're using the restroom that every other individual who's working in the field is using that also doesn't have AC that smells and it hasn't been flushed out for four months and it, there's flies flying around. I mean, there is hard work in our world. If you have AC, it's not hard work. I, I just don't care what your line of work is. Now you can give your all. You can give everything you have to something. And I actually think that's where this like idea of balance kind of, you know, comes from. That is, is a total fallacy as well in the world, right? The idea of balance and still being able to be a high achiever. Like you have to be intentionally unbalanced for some time, but you have to do it in a way that fuels you and gives you your ability to give it your all. Uh, hard work is not sitting in an office for twelve hours a day making calls and playing you know, strategic games with incredible clients or building plans that are going to ultimately bring in more and how you service them, them bigger and better. Hard work is like working for $10 an hour, sanding boats in a boat, like in a shipyard where you're making, yeah. I don't know, they make in a shipyard, right? But like make a minimum wage to sweat your butt off and do this for 14 hours straight to make $140. That's, That's hard, hard work. work. Yeah, I always... Hard work. My, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but one more thing. Hard work was my grandfather working in a paper mill for like decades. I think they worked there for like 40 years doing one of two jobs the entire time. Cutting reams of paper for 10-hour shifts. Stepping into a manager position. Forming of the warehouse. Watching other people cut reams of paper in the Wasa paper mill. Like that's hard work. And that guy never made more than like $18,000 a year. Raised five kids on that income. His wife was a Catholic school teacher, my grandma. They didn't have pot to piss in. Like they had zero yeah. money and they worked their butts off for an insane amount of time to have nothing when it, they passed. It's incredible, man. Off. Like, it, Joe, like you talk about like working like jobs like paint and doing the mail. Like, we always have respective flavorings of this. And this is why I always talk to Joel about this. Like, we've somehow related at some point, but just weren't. But, you know, maybe it's the Polish connection. Like, I spent most of my summers as a kid welding and, like, with a full jacket on in the warehouse. And the thing is, anyone knows that's ever welded is that you can't have the fans on because it messes up the argon, so you can't weld correctly. So, basically, you're just getting soaked and whooped. So, like, when I listen to, like, corporate guys be like, I'm working hard, it's like, dude... I want to hear it. Now, admittedly, like, I'm more tired at the end of the day doing this than I was doing that. But my body's not getting whooped. Like, yep. you're, my eyesight, like, my eyesight is, like, my eyesight is an undeniably worse than it should be at my age because of that, doing it so many years. So, like, there's not hard, like, we perceive it as hard, but it's like, is it hard? Is, like, your body hurt? No. Like, you might be tired or have a headache. That's just staring at a screen, like... <laughs> the average guy at Storm the Beach at D-Day was like 19 years old. Like, I don't want to hear anything about like, oh, your mid-level management job is hard work. Kiss my yeah. ass. 
Um, so hard, hard is easy, and hard is dictated by can you do it or is it more difficult to go get it done? It's a choice. Totally. Like we just choose to work until the job is done. I don't get to hour eleven and go, oh, I don't know if I can do this another hour. I go, okay, I got to go get this done. Okay, cool. It is what it is. Move it on. Hopefully text my wife to be a decent communicator and say, I'm probably going to be later than I told you I was, which is like a daily happenstance, uh, and, and keep the communication flow, and then dial back in for another couple of hours because the job is not done until the job is done, and that's just the principle that thanks Nike, right, yeah. uh, for that contribution. Joe, you said the word a couple of weeks ago, like when I was talking to you, like the word operator. I always think about it, it's like just being an operator. That's what it is. What it is. Also, shout out Lauren. Uh, which actually brings us to the final part of like, this is the thing too. Like there's a theme of this podcast, like the juice of this thing is the final 10 minutes, but like understanding how it gets to this point of the last 10, you have to understand the first 40 of it. And people just think you just get to show up and be in the 10 and that's not how it works. Um, the whole thing. It's a very generous way to let the audience know I had to warm up. Well played. Shout out Joel. Um, (laughs) so the, the final part is like, Joel, you brought this up, and I don't talk about this enough, admittedly, and it needs to be addressed more, is there is the balance. And the, like, how you describe it, I think you do such a good job excreting it more than I do, of like, because I'm also a living bad example of that. Like, Joel's actually happily married. Joel's wife is awesome. Um, Joel's got, like, a lot of great things he's figured out how to do and figuring out the balance of it. And it's like, the more you're going to push, the more you're going to give. Like there is a put, there is a give and take to this, and unfortunately, like that's a whole act in itself of balancing that. I guess Joel, like, if you want to speak on that, I think you can articulate it to a much more professional degree than I can. Uh, ha- happy to do it, Cody. You know, for for me, um, so getting to watch my dad, who was an operator, he was an entrepreneur. As I look back on it, watching him go build and do what he had to do. He, he traveled eighty five percent of my childhood. So for eighty percent of my life growing up, he was gone off on dealer meetings, boat shows, dropping in at dealers, getting them set up, making sure they had the right orders. He was on the road. It wasn't this like virtual remote world. They had pagers, right? It wasn't cell phones being active in this tremendous way. He, he was hitting the road. He was a traveling businessman. He did what he had to do. But my father never missed out on my life. And here's what I mean by that. Because when he was home, he was 100% present. Like he was where his feet were. And he used to say, uh, you know, do you like the life that you live? Yeah. yeah, Daddy, I like the life that I live. Do you wish Daddy was here more? Yeah, I think so. Well, you know to live the life we live, Daddy has to go. I don't like to, but I, he has to do it. Yeah, Daddy, I know. Okay, cool. Because when he said he was going to be there, he was there. I was never the kid in the baseball game who was looking at the bleachers going, I don't know if my dad's going to make it today. He told me beforehand, I will not be there on Thursday night, but I'll be at your Saturday morning soccer game. And he did it. He followed through. So he got all his work done, and then he came home when he was the family man. And he was this incredible presence when he was home, right? And he was also this incredible operator in business. In fact, I'm, you know, my, my wife and I are in the market for, for a boat. And so I'm on forums. And I, I'm commenting in forums, and I cannot tell you how many boat dealers are reaching out going, is your father Jay Wodzinski? He's the first one who gave me a chance. I will give you the Jay Wodzinski deal of a lifetime. Like, call me if you need anything. Is insane impact, right? It's been tremendous to see. But how do I correlate that into my life? There's a few things that I, I need in life, and it's actually a pretty long list, right? Like anybody, 
I want decent amounts of sleep. I want to be incredibly successful. I want to have surplus of cash around so I can do what I want as I'd like to do it while I'm still meeting my commitments at work. I want work that fulfills me. I want a relationship that's incredible. And then relationship, you want things like anybody. You want to laugh. You want to, you know, move yourself to tears. You want intimacy. You want downtime. You want all the things. I'm the same as anybody. I want time with my pets. I want time with my family. I want time with my buddies. I want time to go pursue my hobbies. I want time for my faith. I want time for my fitness. I want time. Like the list goes on. And if we are equally balanced across all of them, get a stopwatch and give yourself 13 minutes for each task throughout the day. I have 13 minutes to get all my work done today. Boom, you're done. 13 minutes to spend with my wife. Boom, done. 13 minutes to talk to my parents. Boom, done. 13 minutes to talk to my best friend from college. Boom, done. 13 minutes to go work out. Boom, done. You will make zero progress anywhere in your life, and you will be miserable if you are equally balanced through all of them. Not to mention you're only getting 13 minutes of sleep each day. That kind yeah. of sucks. Like, you're not going to be able to do it. So you go through these phases where you're going to be intentionally out of balance. If you're in a new role, and you, not everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur, right? So, like, if you go my path, which is then land in a organization that I think I can do more with than I can do independently. That's it fundamentally. I can focus here with an incredible team that I believe in with a vision that's big, that's real, that's so large, mine can fit inside of it. And ultimately focus that energy there. And you're new to that role. You can't do that effectively by like going nine to five. You're just not going to because you have to work in the business in the day and you have to work on the business in the nights and weekends. And so anytime I've stepped into a new role, I turn to my wife and I say the same thing my dad said to my mom, give me six months. For the next six months, I need to go all in, like called the vortex, right? Like I'm stepping into the vortex and I need to be all in here. But what do you need from me for us to continue to have an amazing relationship? My wife needs a few things and they're not complex. She wants to know when I'm gonna be home with reasonable expectations. She holds it down. She's like the chief operating officer of our household, right? She's also a phenomenal real estate agent. So she's driving her business and she probably works harder than I do. But she wants to know when I'm gonna be home. She wants a little bit of quality time. On the weekends, she wants to wake up in the morning and we go get her Starbucks. Not every weekend, right? She's gonna probably listen to this and go, BS, right? We do that like once a month, maybe. And it's usually my idea. But I say yes, because it matters to her, right? perfect and she wants to just have some uninterrupted time where she feels like she's the priority but the reality is if i don't give her that right and i'm so selfish to say i can't sacrifice anything i can't take any time away from my work to building this organization you have to suck it up and and deal with it she will be miserable she would understand and she'd pay the fee but she would be miserable not that i'm so great right she just needs a little bit of time i didn't say all the time But she wouldn't be happy. She moved to my life to go be with me. She moved from her hometown where all her friends from where her family were to come be with me. She left her career where she was working with uh, autistic kids and behavioral therapy to come be with me. And in that transition, realized she might have wanted something different, too. So she pursued real estate. I owe it to her to give her the time that she wants and needs, because if I don't, we're going to have a bad relationship. It's going to lead to the D word. It is going to cause me misery. I'm going to be ineffective in my work. I'm going to be drained because I also, it's not just like this like sacrificial thing, right? Oh, I guess I'll sacrifice this. I get filled up by spending time with my wife. Contrary to popular belief by so many, I, you know, you should actually enjoy the person you spend your time with. Funny how that works, man. I don't know what, yeah. I know. 
I love and I cherish that time, and I'm unwilling. And I've gotten to a point where I am unwilling to sacrifice that. If that's the price that I have to pay to go get to it that much bigger of a life, I have seen that much bigger of a life, and it is incredible. It is awesome. But it is not what I'm willing to do without the person by my side who I want to go spend that time with. Because I don't want to be so poor that all I have is money. And that is ultimately how I look at my balance. I look at my priorities. I keep all of those aspects in my life. And the things that aren't as high on the priority list, they're just going to fall by the wayside. And that's okay. That's why my friends don't hear from me every day. My best friend in this world, I probably talk to once every three weeks if we're in a hot streak of communication. And that'll be like two texts back and forth that I'll probably take 48 hours to get back to. You know what? I'm laughing about this. Like, I've had people date before and they're like, I don't think you have any real friends. Like, no, I don't think you get it. Like, if I texted one of my buddies, Abu, like, hey, like my one friend, Scott, if I text him, like, hey, how's it going? Like, you all right? Obviously, you're going like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, are you okay? Like, what, what's going on? Like, why are you messaging me right now? It's like, I saw you three months ago. Like, I'll see you again eventually soon. Like, it's the same thing where it's like, oh, how's so-and-so doing? I'm sure he's doing fine. Like, if there's something wrong, like, he would have called me. Like, he's busy building his own thing. And, like, at a certain point, like, we'll enjoy it. But, like, I, I don't, like, the. I always think it, I always thought it would be really cool, man, to, like, play on... I had friends uh, back in the day, like, they play on these, like, softball leagues, and they play, like, every Tuesday and, and Thursday together, and that sounded really cool, man, and they'd go out, they'd, you know, watch Thursday night football together, have a bunch of beers and a bunch of wings, and I was like, man, I always wanted to be a part of that so bad, and then I realized, like, after going to see that a couple of times, and the conversation that was had there, I just, I wanted to blow my brains out, like, figuratively here. That's a guy that's had suicidal, like, issues, like, I'm allowed to make that joke, um, but so I don't mean to laugh at that, by the way. Like, <laughs> no, it, no, we, no, it, we, we can laugh at it. It's like my own divorce jokes. Like, I'm allowed to laugh at that too. Like, we can laugh at those. Um, there you go. So it's the thing where it's like, wait, the conversation I'm having here, like, I, I hate, like, I don't hate it, but it's like this is really uninteresting to me at all. Like, so you're meaning to tell me like nothing better has gotten about your life. Like, there's nothing we're doing. Like, this is it for you. And it, like, yeah. I refuse to accept that reality to be a truth for me. Just refused. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, yeah. it's the same thing where it's like, I used to, like, to say, I'm sure you're so like, are they your, actually your friends? Like, you don't hang out every week. Like, my God, like, why would we hang out every week? Like, that's like, at a certain point, it's cool until it's like, guys, I got to actually yeah. go do this, you know? So, it's, it's just different. Well, and, and you know, I, you grow up and when you see all these different families and 50% are divorced and there's no shame in that, right? And power to anybody who's realized they made a choice and it's not the right fit for them anymore. This person was someone they didn't think they are. Everybody on their path, I don't judge, right? Everybody's living their life. But I don't subscribe to living a life that I need a break from. You know, like Lauren, she loves to travel. That's like her thing. She wants to go travel. And it's awesome. So I try to support it. But she's always like, where do you want to go to next? I'm like, I don't know. I I love the life that I live. I was So I talk about this all the time. Like, you see all these guys that fly to Bali. It's like, I've set up my life tour like, Dude, I love the little parts of my day. Like, I find so much joy in the fact that, like, I got a new Peruvian coffee I put in my French press in the morning. Like, that's the highlight of the week for me right now. It tastes a little different. Like, it's it's these things that we want to escape reality of, like, what yeah. we're actually – it's like, what if I built the reality around me to be what I wanted it to be? Mm-hmm. And then I'm not you know running what? from it. You know what's fascinating, Cody? Sorry to interrupt you there. But you know what's fascinating? I love movies. I've always loved movies. I love The Escape, The Fast and the Furious, magnificently horrible films, right? Like, I got no complaints. I love movies, whether it's Star Wars, Harry Potter, romantic comedies, 
I don't do thrillers, right? Like, I why pretend to be scared? I don't get it. It right. doesn't make any sense. I don't like horror. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I want what I want to pay good money so I can not sleep well tonight. Like right. that sounds horrible. You know how much anxiety I can <laughs> I deal with on a given day. Like yeah, let's just make it worse. Yeah. So yeah, no. like, but I, I don't enjoy movies like I used to. Because, I no longer want to spend time away from my own life. Like I don't want to watch these stories unfold that are other people living lives when I love the life that I live. I would rather go out on my dock, sit with my wife and watch the sunset and just talk to her. Like time has become so precious that I don't need the escape. And I'm so grateful for that, right? Like call me blessed. I totally subscribe to it. I am all for gratitude to the Lord giving me the life that he has and and permitting me to have what I have in my life, not taking anything away from me yet. So I just don't enjoy them anymore. It's fascinating, and and I I still want to like them, and I'll still go to watch them. I'm not saying like, oh, I don't watch movies because I it's not productive, and I could be doing like, look, I I like I kind of dig Yellowstone. Like I get the TV series, the show. It's it's exciting to me. I'm looking forward to the next episode coming out, but it's because I've really fallen in love with that storyline. But I don't just like want. I never on a Saturday afternoon I'm not like, oh, what movie can I watch? If I see something that fascinates me, I'll go watch it. But it's by happenstance, not because I now want to go seek out this activity. And it used to be a staple of my life. Like, I used mm. to love – I love what I do for work. That's I a- love the t- meetings that my team is having. I love getting up on Sunday morning while Lauren is sleeping in because she goes and busts butt for real estate all yeah. week long. Like, I love those couple of hours where I'm sitting there working while she's sleeping peacefully and, and it's quite serene, right? Like, Awesome. I love my life and I'm so blessed for that. And I, you know, there were a lot of years where I was working to get to a point where I felt content. Uh, my will to win is not for sale. I'm not content in the level of life. We're going to continue to grow and big and explode and get there. But I'm so blissful in the process and that journey that I hope everybody gets to feel this. I really do. And it's, what's it like Izzy Adesanya where he won that championship belt he's like I just wish you got a chance to feel this feeling I get to feel over and over and over again and that's the thing man I think that there's the tickets to the entrance because it's funny how you and I talk about this and like it makes me one realize like I'm not nuts and like how I think about it and so there's more guys like that out there that think of it so this podcast is to help others but it also helps me in the same way so like it's an introspective reflection that Sometimes we think we want to get, like be a part of the competing part of this, and sometimes you have to fight to get on the field. And then when you're on the field, man, you just love competing for it. Like there's something about it. There's the Instagram story you guys see where I call it the ugly hours on Fridays, where the ugly hours are typically like I'll probably start working at like four, four thirty, five in the morning, and I always say like just to get the same amount of stuff done so I can leave and still have the same amount of stuff done. But with, I, it's not often talked about. I don't ever clip this because I don't want people like to have the de- like the demoralization. Is Joel? It's five fifty four Central Time, man, and we're still going. And I have no problem. Like it doesn't bother me. So we're doing a little overtime. It just makes you think, man. I just want to compete again, man. That's all I want to do is just compete one more time. And it used to be when I started this thing. Like I can't wait till the day that I sell this practice, walk off with an eight figure payday, and I'm good. And then. I remember one of the guys I learned from, he's like a second dad to me, and he goes, okay, let me tell you this. 
What if I told you today was the last day you ever got to meet and help somebody? It was the last time you ever got to walk somebody through and save some money on taxes, how we're doing this. How would you feel? And like it almost brought me to tears because I was like, that'd be the end of it. Like, it, it's, it's the end. And I just, yeah, man, so it's just the ability to compete every day. And like, guys that get it, get it where it's like, yeah, it's not hard because it's just some. I just want to play the game again because I just want to see what it looks like in five years and ten years. The gratification yeah. is just watching the growth, brother. It's the the what's the saying, Joel? You know this. Uh, it's not the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit is the happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, in in all of the accolades, titles, you name it, that we won as a team in cheerleading, my best memories were the practices were like. <sighs> We were running in an alley because, like, I look back and I just remember laughing because somebody couldn't hit this stunt, so we had to go do sprints every time they dropped. And we're doing, like, three extra hours of sprints on a work weekend where this is just intense. And it's our third workout of the day. It's 9 o'clock at night. Like, it's our third practice, three-hour practices. We had a workout in the morning before that. Like, we're just hustling, grinding. You're working yourselves to the bone. And you're just laughing about how horrible you feel. That's one of my best memories in the sport. One of my best memories is the day where, like, yes, we hit the routine, but it was the first time we hit the routine in practice because it was the first time our team really came together and had the skill set to do what we thought we could do. And we still had, like, four weeks out to our full competition. Those are the best moments. My best moment was not walking out in the bright lights, the shining moment, the medal being hung around your neck. Killer moments, by the way. I don't despise those moments are awesome but my favorites were the ones where i was struggling with my teammates next to me you know isn't it kind of interesting like i've come to i pondered that a lot recently and i think it's like when you start to unlock the next level where you you your brain connects to the body and i'm like huh so we did have more in the tank than i thought yeah huh that's kind of interesting and so that's there's another gear right And, and but contrary to athletics like there's no professional cheerleading. When I got into college, I, I didn't, okay, there's professional cheerleading teams. If anybody comments Dallas Cowboys, those are dancers, not cheerleaders. Like, the sport is different. And it's also like you pay, like, minimum wage, too. So it's like, it's almost like a nut lost to get, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, Yeah. They're almost like, they're like paying, basically paying to be there. Right? Yeah. Like, uh, which, you know, it's just like ringside girls or whatever, right? Hey, respect the game, right? Do your thing. Whatever's right. good for you. But... I don't have a end date on this game that I'm playing right now. Do you know how exciting that is? Like there's the peace in it. That yeah. We had over four and a half years. I was a four and a half year college guy. Sorry, <laughs> like the four and a half years of college that I had, how much better I got at what I committed myself to. I don't have an end in sight. It like, it's silly to think of where we can be playing. Where are we going to be playing, playing in four and a half years from now? I don't know. But I get senior year over and over and super senior and then super, super senior. I've got 20 years. I've got 40 years, if God wills me to. And in- I don't have an end in sight because I love what I do. And if that ever changes, then we'll reevaluate. But up until that point, um, God bless being in a country where you can wake up every single day and change the trajectory of your life. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'd always... Up until that- Joe, I always equated this, and like now the thing I look forward to is now getting to the backside. Like I just want to compete again for the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is. And I, like Joe, you, you're fully familiar with this too. The growth phases are very painful. Like when you're going in a growth period, it hurts. Like people think it's like, oh, yeah, all this cash is increasing. It's like 
it's coming on blood and it's coming on stress and anxiety. It ain't just coming out of the sky. (laughs) And so I think about going in the sewer and, um, you know, I'm not the best with Florida municipalities. I'm assuming you guys got the sewer lids in the middle of the street. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So I imagine it like this. Like right now, um, when you first start something, right, you, 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 you the house you walk out of and then you walk down in the sewer lid. You pop open the sewer lid, you go down in there and you walk northbound. All right. Well, that's the growth period. You walk it off and you just go through us pain and trudge all the sludge, mud, shit, piss. And then you pop the lid up, right, and you walk out. And now, now you look at this next house like, man, this house is a lot nicer. That's your house now, man. And so you get to go walk into there. And then eventually you sit there and you go like, well, maybe I'll do it again. So you walk back out, you pop that lid open, you trudge through it again, and you walk back up again. It's the same thing over and over. And I just want to get to a point to where when most guys are like, all right, man, life's good. The house can't get any better. The car life can't get any better. This can't get any better. I got everything. I just want to be the one guy that's known of like, let me do it one more time. I just want to do it one more time because it ain't ever been about me. So I could care less about the house. I just don't care. I just want to know that like, can I just do it one more run? And if I die doing it, I die doing it. If I don't, I don't. But then the fact of the matter is like, there's this thing where I just want to transcend this memory of folks where it's like that guy emptied the tank. Yeah. And you know what's incredible? I I have huge admiration for the CEO of our firm, Chris. He's a tremendous guy. I mean, 17 years ago, he started the firm with an idea, an aptitude, and a desire to, to grow it. And he went 10 months without collecting a paycheck. Same year... He had just gotten a nice expensive house because he had this really cush high pay job. He had a baby who was just born. And then he turns to his wife and he goes, I'm going to do this thing on my own. I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to go do it. Takes 10 months to get his first paycheck. Kind of a stressful window of time. Not something that I'm sure was particularly enjoyable. <laughs> but I ask him all the time. I go, look, man, eventually you're going to have to slow down either by choice or by force. Like one of the two is going to happen, God willing, it's choice, and it's a long time away because you're a heck of a leader. What are you going to do? And he looks at me and he goes, he's very thoughtful. True depth of thought into every response he makes. And he goes, well, I suppose it would be nice to take a, a bit of a longer vacation away. The firm has been his life, right, and in, in how he's built it, grown. He paid the fee. He's paid the cost of being a true entrepreneur. I have so much respect for those who are wired that way. I believe I'm a better number two than a number one, but hey, right, to each their own. Uh, huge respect for number ones out there in the world. And he goes, I, and I started going where you go or any kind of has some thoughts, and I go, what do you do when you get back? And he goes, I don't know, I'll probably hop on a project. Like, he climbed the mountaintop, he built the firm. Currently, we have a couple hundred folks working at the firm. We're going to have a couple thousand. We're going to have tens of thousands. We're going to go compete at the biggest level, doing what we do and doing it our way in the spirit and the culture of who we are and what we do, which is very different than every other firm in the world. He wants to go back to being the bottom consultant, like being billable on a project and just going and helping our clients win. You can't beat people. You can't beat people like that because it's never, it's not about it. No, if this was about the money, it could have been done a while ago, right? It's about the game. And that was one of the biggest takeaways from working with Patrick as well, was he loves that game. 
that dude is fired up. There's no stopping him. The vision is real, and he's going to go achieve it. And when you love the game that you play, like, I love this game that I'm in, game over. It is just a matter of time because other folks who are just doing it for the money, they're going to go. Other folks who are just trying to do it for a pension, they're going to go. Other folks who are just doing it to collect a check, and at 10 years they're going to exit their firm because they've got a royalty or dividend that they're going to get paid out because of their investments, game over. I love this game. And I know you love yours. It's part of why we work together. Yeah, it's just an interesting part, man. It's like I always want to meet, and it's like the interesting part, like, ideally you want to meet people too. Like, Joel, I wish I would have actually had a chance to meet you, like, in the hard part of UCF. Because I typically now want to meet people at their worst. Because I just want to see what the character shows up when it's really bad. And then because it's like, how is this person going to respond? And that tells me everything I need to know, and we'll figure it out from there afterwards. Joe, we'll have to do like a part two of this because it's just like you and I are still in growth phases. So I think like how we do this thing will just change itself out um, and is what we talk about because the, the game is always ever evolving. It's like we get a whole podcast on what is the game actually? Like what is the game? It's like, well, if you've never been there, you don't. it's like Fight Club. If you've never been up to it, you don't really know what it is. But like when you know you're in the game, you know you're in the game. It's just a weird yeah. thing, man. Um, for you, it's going to be different, right? Like for everybody, they're going to get this moment where they're going to, I hope, if they're lucky – they're going to go, I get it. Like, I'm playing the game that I was meant to play. It, you know, the final pairing is the cool part of, like, you pair the entrepreneur with the entrepreneur, and that's when it gets magical. Because the entrepreneur, like, how to put it, the number two, like, when you get the right entrepreneur, the entrepreneur creates the framework. But for him to get it from here to here, grinding it out, it's going to take forever. But you match him after the framework with the right entrepreneur, and that's when it's not a one plus one. It's a one multiplied by an infinite multiple, and it just flies faster. So it's just, it's, it's, you can't have one without the other. You need an engine and a transmission, period. Uh, Joe, yeah. I guess in Let's closing, as we do in Codecast fashion, as we always do here, um, Worst piece of business advice you ever got? Oh, man. That's a good question. It came from somebody who had never done it. Like, so first and foremost, right? Right there, yeah. Right? Um, Worst piece of business advice I ever got. Oh, that's tough. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. Well, now then you start going, I start going, I'm, I'm an analytical person, right? So I start going, was it directly given to me? What, did I see it in oh, passing? Fair, <laughs> well, just fair. The answer. Uh, <laughs> I guess, Joel, you know, is this where, like, you get an entrepreneur's down? Like, I, Joel's ability to, like, dissect immediate detail of, like, well, how do we shape the hourglass here? Like, I would have, like, eventually I would have maybe come to, like, I should reframe that question. I just asked the question, like, let's see what happens here. But then that's like you match like the intro plus the entrance. It's like we're asking a shitty question. You need to ask it this way. And it's like we'd probably get better responses. Like, huh? I would have gotten to that maybe at some point, but I would have suffered through so many awful interviews before. I would have like, what if I just asked it this way? Um, yeah. Okay. I guess best piece of I'm sorry, worst piece of business advice that was verbally given to you by somebody. All right. I won't say who it was, but they've never actually achieved anything. The name people might know. Interesting. Uh, if you just keep going, you'll make it. It's like so not true. Like if you were to just jump off of the 
they're saying it in business, right? But if you think about that in life, like go crawl into the Atlantic Ocean, get to Miami, spend some time on South Beach, have a great time, wake up refreshed, rejuvenated, hydrated, well-fueled, jump into the ocean and swim to Europe. You're not going to make it. Like the physical body will not get you there. Mm. You will drown. It will be bad. You're having a rough day. You're going to go meet God and you're going to be like, but I got this. Like I, if I just kept going, I would make it. And he's probably going to say, I sent you a life raft to be saved. I had a paddle boarder come out and try to save you. Coast Guard came by and you kept saying, no, 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 I'm going to make it to Europe. And then you drowned. God, why did you let me drown? I tried to send you a boat and a paddle boarder. And I told, I had your friend call you and say, it was a horrible idea. Don't do it. You tried it anyway. Business is the same thing. It's like acting. You know, people always say like, oh, if you just keep going, you will make it one day. Do you know how many actors there are in L.A. who are who have died, who have committed their entire life to making it in Hollywood, who were never discovered, they never made it? Like The reality is at some moment, fortune has to come your way. Again, success is a combination of opportunity meeting preparation. You don't necessarily control the opportunity part. There's levers you can pull. But at some moment, it's either going to come your way or it won't. And there are so many entrepreneurs who... Okay, and now a little semantics argument can be made. Well, they never adapted. They never learned. They never improved. They never got the skills. They never did the thing. But to simplify that, to just keep going and you will make it, is horrifically irresponsible advice to give to people without some of those caveats. And it's giving them a false sense of confidence because they're going, if you have this and I see you on social media and I've had this, this is not Patrick Bed David. That guy's legit as they come. He's one of the best guys I've ever met, and we have a good relationship to this day. Nothing but good experiences. Shout out, Pat. Uh, Very important detail there. But there are people out there who are feeding you lines of malarkey. Just keep going. No, you have to have the right skill set applied in the right arena, in the, the right timing, with the right people, with the right people who have the need. And all of those have to align for you to then go make it. So, sure, if you want to, like, dive in, you can control how you go get there. But if you try to bring a horrible idea to market and it's just never going to take off and there's no need for it in the world. My grandfather was a aspirational entrepreneur, the other one, not the factory worker. And he tried to create a, he almost bankrupted himself, right? Like he put everything on black and he said, this is going to be the best idea out there. And I may be telling the story wrong, but whatever. It's my memory. <laughs> I wasn't there. Old stories, right? It's probably a lie to begin with. And he cut up one of my dad's wetsuits to create a wrap around the remote control TVs back in like the 80s. The remote controls for the TVs, because when they'd fall, they'd shattered a billion pieces. But TV remotes were like three bucks at the time. And the cost to manufacture this thing was going to be like a $30 item. Like nobody's paying a $30 item so you can like keep the remote from shattering. He made an otter box. It was the right idea for the wrong application at the wrong time. And if he bet everything on black and he totally bankrupted his life on that, not that he completely did, had he just kept going, he would have messed up everything else. Yeah. He should have, it was the right time to stop because it was the wrong idea. So do so intelligently, do so methodically, do so strategically. I'm a believer in build the skills and build them on somebody else's dollar. I build my sales skills at Gardner. I built my uh, learning and development, training skills, coaching skills at Gardner. I built my... Uh, outbound sales effort with no name brand standard, no name recognition, add insight. I built my leadership skills 
with valuetainment and learning from some of the best. I built my next layer of skills by reading books, by doing the things that I need to go do to get there. Just keep going is a horrible piece of advice. Sorry, really long response to an otherwise simple question. <laughs> no, because it's one so often given that I think it's helpful to bring it back to that. Joel, we've officially hit our longest podcast ever, and it has been a delightful one, to say the least. Um, um, sorry no, to hold you so long. That's either a good or bad record. No, play, but I've enjoyed. It, no, so normally much. when I have to look over the clock, I'm like, huh, we're going for an hour and a half. I get how Rogan does it now. Um, well, guys, it's been fun for this series, as we always say. Uh, to the next us is hopefully the best us. We'll see you again for the next episode of Codecast. Thank you. <laughs>